come now to God's Word, and I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We had been in a series in Galatians, and I will return to that next week, Um, but in light of the baptism, I thought we would reflect upon another passage in Matthew that speaks of children and the way Christ viewed children, and even as Christ pointed to children as a kind of picture book for us to learn what it means uh, to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Children are a kind of picture book that teach us what it is to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so we had looked at a passage in Matthew uh, during Lucy's baptism, and so today we'll reflect upon another uh, passage. And Jonathan had shared with me that they had recently uh, studied this together or read through it as a family. So Miles, I know you know all of this already, but I need you to pay attention to it. <laughs> so Matthew chapter 18, before we read, uh, let's go before our God in prayer that he might bless this word to us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active. We thank you that you continue uh, to speak even to us today. And so grant us humble hearts and humble minds to receive from you, to sit at Christ's feet, our only teacher, and to hear his voice, that it might lead us and teach us what it means to be citizens of his kingdom, the very kingdom of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 18, and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 4. This is the holy and inspired word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were asked to give a brief history of the Christian church from the New Testament to the present day, I imagine most of us, I would probably do this as well, would um, trace the history by noting some of the key figures uh, throughout history. Maybe in the early church, you land on Augustine and talk about the controversies uh, that he um, dealt with and and the the, uh, good fight of faith that he fought may go through the medieval period, come to Anselm or various other theologians during that time. Uh, You might get to the Reformation and speak of Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger. You might come to the present day, think of great men like R.C. Sproul or others, right? And so often we would retell the history of the Christian church by noting figures that have really stood out, and we praise God for such figures. They've been a blessing to the church. God raises up teachers, uh, some with greater... um, uh, 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 capacity or greater uh, reach, I should say, uh, regarding their influence. But what I would often also want us to reflect upon is that the history of Christ's church is filled with countless individuals whose name we have no clue of, but only God knows. The Christian church, and even in our own lives, we could probably point to somebody who nobody else here might know, and yet that person was so instrumental in the Lord's hand in bringing me to salvation or, or causing me to grow in Christ or, or pressing me forward, encouraging me. If it's true of our day, how many uh, could it be true of the ages that have passed before? The church and the history of the church is filled with countless unknown individuals 
who have served the Lord Jesus Christ, who have served his people, even giving their lives for the sake of the church. And they're known only to Christ. They're only known to God. And one day we may come to know them in glory. But how many countless individuals. And I was recalling a conversation I had with Jonathan a few months ago. And he explained to me that Miles uh, had received his name, Miles, uh, from the reformer, who is pretty unknown, and his name is Miles Coverdale. Now, many of us know William Tyndale, the inter- uh, uh, translated the Bible into English, but it was really Miles Coverdale who was one of the first to bring the Bible into the English language. Suffered much persecution in the early 1500s, was exiled from England a number of times, came back, and a man that we don't know much about, and yet the impact that this man had in serving the church in an unknown way, is uh, tremendous. And men like that fill uh, the history of God's church. I want to just to read uh, one uh, sentence uh, from Miles Coverdale's preface uh, to the first English Bible. And he had exhorted the people reading, and exhorts us even today. He says, Go now, most dear reader, and sit thee down at the Lord's feet and read his words. And it's calling us to a, a posture of humility before the very word of God, something that he himself exemplified in his own life. And this notion of humility is really what Jesus is focusing on here in Matthew chapter 18, right? He says that unless you humble yourself like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. As I said earlier, children, as we're going to talk about, are a kind of picture book of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They point to uh, the notion of humility. Now, what exactly that means, we'll, we'll flush that out in a moment. But they are a picture book for what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so first thing I want us to focus upon is that phrase itself, the kingdom of heaven. You'll notice if you look down at the text that it's used three times. Uh, emphasis is placed upon the sphere in which greatness is to be defined. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you turn and become like children. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you were to read the parallel accounts of this story in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, you'll actually notice that Mark and Luke don't make mention of the kingdom of heaven. It's quite unique uh, to Matthew's telling, consistent with Mark and Luke, of this event. Which means to say that Matthew really wants to emphasize the kingdom of heaven. It's something unique about what he is trying to convey in this episode of Jesus' life. And so it raises the question, what then is the kingdom of heaven? Now, there's many verses that we could look at. In fact, if you were to even spend uh, the afternoon reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll notice that throughout the Gospel, there is this contrast and this, um, this polarization between heaven and earth. Here, Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven. But if you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness... It's Satan who comes to him right, and tempts him with the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdoms of the world. And throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, there is this contrast between the kingdom of heaven and how the citizens of that kingdom operate and live, 
and those who are citizens of the kingdom of earth and how they operate and live. And Jesus shows that there is a contrast between the two. And this runs throughout the whole book of Matthew. Again, reread it and make note of what is said of heaven, what is said of earth. And so when Jesus here speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he's referring to, uh, as a contrast to the kingdoms of earth, the kingdom that stands above all things. A kingdom whose origin point, whose source of power, whose source of strength is not that which is earthly, but that which is heavenly. And Jesus is going on to show how greatness in the kingdom of heaven differs from what is defined as greatness in the kingdoms of the earth. We'll say more about that in a moment here. But Jesus is going to go on to show the contrast between how citizens of the kingdom of heaven are to live and the way they are to live in contrast to the citizens of the kingdoms of earth. There's a different ethic. There's a different way um, of living. And so then we have, when it refers here, the kingdom of heaven is referring to that kingdom whose origin and source of strength is found not in this earth, but in heaven where Christ is now has gone. And so when we think about this phrase then, that is the sphere of context, the sphere in which Jesus is going to go to demonstrate and speak about what heaven, rather what greatness is, is in the kingdom of heaven. And so we move then to the question that's asked. And there's two more points I want us to reflect upon, right? So we just said a few brief words about the kingdom of heaven. Kind of encourage you to go see that phrase a bit more in the Gospel of Matthew. But for the sake of time, we'll move on to our two main points. The first one is the disciples' earthly-minded question. And then secondly, Jesus' heavenly-minded answer. So an earthly-minded question and a heavenly-minded answer that is given. And so notice, firstly, the earthly-minded question. The disciples come to Jesus at that time, and they ask this question, verse 1, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now you can read the other gospel accounts in Mark and in Luke, and um, we also read there that they were fighting and bickering in terms of who among them would be the greatest, who would sit at Christ's right hand and who would be at his left side. Or they're, they're arguing amongst one another, and, they, and Jesus finally asks them, and then they come with this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? When we come to recognize in Jesus' answer is that the question is asked from an earthly mindset. That the disciples began to think in terms of greatness as the world would define greatness. How might the world define greatness? How might you define greatness in this world? Who succeeds in this world? Who advances in this world? Who prospers in this world? Well, those of power, those of wealth. Uh, those of great giftedness and talentedness. We often can define greatness in terms of earthly success, power, uh, strength, being able to overcome foes, climbing the hill, uh, pushing those off of that hill, being the king of the hill at the end, right? All of those things, that's how greatness is often defined in terms of um, appearance of strength. Appearance of glory, appearance of, of what looks impressive before men. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, we get examples of this. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he's said to be one 
um, who was uh, of great earthly power, right? He had a great Babylon, his kingdom. And in the book of Daniel, we read how he was one day standing on his, uh, his castle wall, and he looks out, standing over all that he has accomplished and all that he has made, and he says, what a great Babylon that I have established with my own strength, right? That's earthly-mindedness in terms of greatness. And Nebuchadnezzar, as we, as we might know, was humbled by the Lord, began very tall, but like a tall tree, the divine axe man comes, chops at the roots and chops at the trunk that he timbers and falls. And it's not until Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and looks up to heaven and acknowledges that there is a God above him that he is restored to his sanity. Greatness is often referred to as a kind of height and tallness, even throughout the Old Testament. Think of the Anakim. The Anakim were a race of giants, for the most part, that terrified the Israelites, kept them from entering into the Promised Land because they were tall. <laughs> they were great. And, 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 their, and their strength and their size caused them to no longer trust the Lord to fight for them, but instead, they began having an earthly mindset, were afraid, and did not enter into the promised land. The Anakim are a kind of statement of earthly greatness, power, strength, conquering all before them, pride, arrogance. So it defines often the foes of God, whether it's the Anakim or later. You have whole armies like the Assyrians coming against Egypt, um, rather against Israel. And they're defined in terms of their strength in their hands, their strength in their arms, they're fierce and they're fast. Right? This is how earthly greatness is defined. Not only biblical examples, think of Alexander the Great, right? one who was great because he conquered great lands and many lands. Think of, I'm not sure if he's still the king, but... King James, right? LeBron James, right? He's the king because of how great he is. He's, he's how skilled he is. I'm not, I'm not sure if he is the king. We can debate that later. But, right, he has that, that, that title, greatness, because he overwhelms his opponents. He's a great player. This is how the world defines greatness. And so when the disciples come to Jesus and ask, who is the greatest, right? They're asking, who will be in a position of status and of power? Who will be on the top of the hill looking down on others? Who will be the one who will rise above everybody else? Who will be the greatest? It's an earthly-minded question. In many ways, it's not only an earthly-minded question, but it's also a very tone-deaf question. If you look down at the text, you'll notice that just before... In chapter 17, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. The very son of the kingdom of heaven just said to them, in verse 22 of chapter 17, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, to the disciples who were asking this very question, he said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they, will, and they were greatly distressed. Jesus, the Son of Man, which is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, this powerful one like a Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom. It's the kingdom language is picked up from there. And this, this Son of Man who is to come to the Ancient Days to receive this kingdom, Jesus teaches that he is that Son of Man, and the way that he is to receive the kingdom is not by overwhelming power and earthly power and, and, and overwhelming his enemies and overthrowing the Romans, but instead that he is to receive the kingdom 
by laying down his life, by being a servant of all, by becoming nothing. And so you can see the tone deafness of their question. The very Son of Man, to whom the kingdom belongs, comes as a servant, gentle and lowly. He comes as a servant, meek. He comes as a servant to lay down his life for his brothers. And they're asking who's going to rise to the top and be the greatest. You can kind of feel that, that dissonance there. And we can often shake our heads at them as well and say, like, why didn't you get that? But maybe I can ask you the question, how often do we have an earthly-mindedness of greatness? How often do we view greatness in terms of earthly success? Something to think about. How often we think, if I just have more power, if I just have more wealth, if I just have more influence, if I just have more whatever it might be. Such a question contradicts the very king of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, those things might bring you greatness in this earth, but it has no value in the kingdom of heaven. Let me give an illustration of this. Um, maybe some of you had this growing up. Uh, in elementary school, uh, you know, if you handed in your homework, uh, kind to somebody, maybe you got a sticker. And I remember getting stickers, and you'd have, um, if you collected enough stickers, maybe 10, 15, you could uh, use those stickers to maybe buy something, a piece of candy from the teacher or whatever it might be, right? Those stickers had a kind of value in the economy of the classroom, right? You could take those stickers, and you could exchange them for something that you might want. They had value within the classroom. Maybe some of the children here, maybe you got some stickers and you can think of this as well. But imagine you know, some of the children here. Imagine you're going out and you want an ice cream cone. And you walk past, I don't know, whatever ice cream shop is around, Haagen-Dazs is, is there. And, and you walk into Haagen-Dazs and you order a, a, a large cone. I was going to say a small one. We'll get a large cone this time. And you order the cone and they say, you know, that'll be $6.20. $6. And what you do is you pull out your stickers, you lay them on the counter is that going to purchase you an ice cream cone? No. The, the value, which had value, they had value in the classroom, but take them out and they have no value. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here, right? There's, there's value to being great in this earth. There's value to that. But it doesn't transfer into the kingdom of heaven. They're different economies. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not defined by greatness in the earth and in the world. In the world, greatness is defined by how successful you have been, how, how, how tall you are compared to everyone, how much you stand over others. But such has no value. In fact, it probably has negative value in the kingdom of heaven. What, has, what is greatness, and we'll come to our second point in Jesus' heavenly-minded answer, is that what is valuable and great in the kingdom of heaven is Humility is lowliness, is taking a position lesser and under those around you that you might serve them. That is what greatness is in the kingdom of heaven. That is what greatness in the kingdom of heaven is because that's what Jesus defined greatness as. Who would be greater in the kingdom of heaven than the very Son of Man? 
And it is the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the Son of Man who came, and maybe we can turn there to Philippians chapter 2, right? You get a great summary of this. So Philippians chapter 2, it's on page 980 if you want to turn there with me. In many ways, uh, the Apostle Paul here is dealing with this very question that the disciples were talking about. So we'll just begin reading at verse 1. Paul says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You can translate that also selfish ambition. But in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. That's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here. This is what greatness looks like. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How might I do this? Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? As we come to be united by faith to the Son of Man, The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we belong to him and our life is conformed to him, it's then that this humility manifests itself in our lives. This is yours in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, Paul is exhorting you and I am exhorting you and God's word is exhorting you then to pursue humility. Looking to the interests of others. Paul says that Christ himself forges the way forward in this way, forges the way forward in humble living, servant-like living. Paul says, who, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the the eyes of the world, as they view it through an earthly mindedness of what constitutes greatness, they see a dead man hanging on a cross. And they're blind to the glory and the greatness that is contained there. Because there is glory and there is greatness contained there. In Christ humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because greatness is not something that just follows, but it's something that God gives. And it's God who, as he orchestrates his perfect plan and as he governs all things, it's he who exalts those of lowly estate. Christ himself, dead on a cross, humbled there. Verse 9 goes on to say, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The lowest humility. The greatest glory. And that is the path that Christ calls each of us to. And he calls you to walk today as his people. As those who identify yourself with Christ. You are to pursue lowliness. You are to pursue humility. You are to pursue being the servant of all. And in many ways, I can commend the congregation here. I mentioned it in the prayer as well. 
There are countless people here. Well, not countless. We have about 100 members. So I guess we can, maybe for the children, if you can't count to 100, it's countless. But we have many members here, right, who serve in so many selfless ways, coming here early, setting up, betting the hymnals out. I was going to mention somebody else, but I don't want to steal their reward in heaven. So we won't take that away from them. But there's so many ways from the musicians practicing throughout the week to come play the piano that we could hear it played well and sing together. The, the people in the fellowship committee, right, preparing the bagels and fellowship meals every week. Uh, those, right, it's, and on and on it goes. And, and so praise God for that. It's Christ-likeness among us. Let us grow in that. Let, let, us, let us grow in humility and serving one another because that is what true greatness is in the kingdom of heaven. And we as the citizens of that kingdom are to live that way. And so Jesus teaches us then and says in these words here, actually let me go back to them so we have the words in front of me. Matthew chapter 18, he says, in, an earth, in a heavenly minded answer, he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children. Now, why does he put children forward to, to convey this point? Why does he put children forward as a kind of picture book of what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Well, the point, one, you can see, is that it redirects their eyes. Right? They have these grandeur of, of greatness, and they're looking to the kingdom of heaven with an earthly mindedness. But Jesus rather redirects their minds to the children there next to them. He brings a child into their midst and their eyes move from, from thinking heavenward and thinking um, greatness in terms of being on top to now looking down at a small child in their midst. And this child, it says all children in that day, didn't have much to commend. In fact, the child was one of the, the lowest on the totem pole in, in society. They didn't have their own bank accounts and money. They're like our children here. Right? You take them out to eat. They don't t- cover the check. Right? It's, that's, that's how it works. The children are those who are needy, those who are lowly, those who are, who are not the, 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 the impressive people of the world that the earth is going to look to in order to secure power and secure possessions and whatever it might be. Instead, Jesus says to overturn all of those things, he says the way up, the way into the kingdom of heaven is the way down. That's, that's, the, that's the paradox here, right? That's, that, that's the shocker. The way up, the way to glory, the way to exaltation is not one of progressing forward by my own strength and overcoming and conquering and having people serve me, but rather it's by humbling myself, lowering myself, submitting myself, and serving one another, especially within the church. Jesus uh, Focus here is especially within the relations of a church. Children are therefore a kind of picture book for us of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And praise God that he has given us many children and many more to come, right, in this congregation. That we constantly have that before us to see that, to remind us, to teach us that true greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not the greatness of this world, but it is found in those who humble themselves even as Christ has led the way for us. In Christ, we are then to humble ourselves, have the mindset that Paul speaks about, to serve one another, even as the Apostle John tells us, loving one another, even to the point of giving our lives for each other. So this is something that we all can continue to grow in, 
while also praising God for the ways that we have grown in this and we have exemplified this. And may the Lord seek to cause us to do this more and more. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I want to just come to a conclusion here. Uh, There's this old Puritan prayer uh, that kind of captures some of this uh, paradox here, that the way up is the way down. And so this prayer goes this way. I'm not going to pray it together, but just listen to these words. It says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. That's where Jesus wants us to see from, right? That's the heavenly mindedness he wants us to live by in this world and especially within the church as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so let us pursue that by his grace, by his spirit, and let us look for ways that we can continue to give our lives for one another, serve one another, and in those ways honor and glorify the Son of Man, our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that your word shows us what we otherwise would be blind to. Father, the examples around us in this world are of greatness um, are those that do not lead to the kingdom of heaven. And so, Father, we thank you for the words of Christ our Lord in teaching us to become like children, to humble ourselves, even as he has set the example and fills us with his spirit that we might do the same. So may humility, may counting others more significant than ourselves, may serving one another abound more and more here by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.